The goals of microservices are the same as what we have pursued in software engineering for decades. Isolation, decoupling, maintainability, scalability. The reason that we use the term microservices is not because we have a completely different idea of what a service is than we used to have. We use the term microservices because we are signaling that we need to achieve these architectural goals in a different way than we needed to 10 to 15 years ago. Marcus Isola is a developer advocate at Lightbend. He joins the show to discuss how enterprises are moving from monolithic architectures to microservices architectures, which has been touched on in previous shows, such as the episode I did with Marcus's colleague, Jonas Bonaire. Lightbend makes a framework called Lagom, which suggests an opinionated strategy for moving towards microservices using message passing, CQRS, and other patterns that we explore in this episode. Marcus Isolet works at Lightbend. Marcus, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. I'm very, very happy to finally meet you and be able to <laughs> yes. join your podcast. Absolutely. So we're talking about reactive microservices today, and the goals of microservices are some of the same goals that we've pursued in software engineering for decades, and you've written about this in your book. Uh, we're talking about isolation, decoupling, maintainability, scalability. The reason that we use the term microservices, even though these are not completely new ideas, is because it's kind of a different idea for the context of these services. We use the term microservices because we're signaling that we're achieving these architectural goals in a different way than we needed to achieve them 10 to 15 years ago. At least I think this is what you write about in your book. And this is primarily because there are some fundamental changes to our systems as a result of cloud, multi-core processors, mobile devices... What are the trends that are changing how we build our architecture, and how are those trends changing how we think about architecture? Um, that's a good question. Um, I've I've been working in classical system architectures for yeah a solid double digit number of years by now, and uh, started as a Java EE enterprise architect. Um, so I've been building pretty pretty big systems, and um, when we started working on com- Compartmentalization, like componentization of our applications. Um, the w- one big dream was always to be able to reuse something, right? We spent millions of dollars in building amazingly complex business logic, and we've we've rarely been able to reuse those brilliantly thought through things, and we ended up never doing it anyway. Um, I I think this is the biggest and most remarkable driver behind microservices in general, even if it's nothing new, as, as you said already, from, uh, from a componentalization idea, like splitting the big un, unmaintainable uh, spaghetti ball up into pieces that are easily consumable. Um, but we're not doing that for, for a software architecture purpose, not because we want to design software, right? Um, we want to, want to address some, some new business requirements mostly. Um, I, I think, Many, many people realize that online business is significantly changing. So back in the days when we started with Java E, it was more like a bunch of people in a department having a PC under the table. And there, there was a need to have a quick CRUD application up and running. And it should be transactional, reliable, but it didn't really need a scale. And uh, with more and more people using the internet, with more and more devices being connected to the internet, um, the the outer architecture requirements just changed. We we needed to we needed to scale out way more, and uh, we've seen vendors addressing that problem, especially in the application server market. But it's always been comparably heavyweight, like throwing money at the problem, throwing hardware problems at scaling problems, and uh, this still doesn't get you where you want it to be, especially not if you're thinking about um, today's requirements. Like like let's let's look at streaming. Um, HBO and Game of Thrones for is is a good example. Like, imagine what happens. Game of Thrones season seven comes out, and ninety nine percent of people can't stream it online because HBO services can't scale accordingly. Um, so this is something that that actually 
drives businesses today um, is is critical for for business. So having having a way of literally scaling almost infinitely um, demand based and um, being able to to address changing traffic requirements. This is an, is a new thing that we never had to care about because we had clusters, we had a reasonable assumption about how application is is actually going to perform according to some non-functional requirements somebody put down in a document. And um, today new businesses don't don't really have that. So we need to have infrastructure that is supporting that on-demand, monitored, dynamic scaling. And our application also needs to understand that requirement and needs to talk to monitoring or be self-monitoring and aware of changing requirements, right? So all this is is hard to separate into some kind of server logic and magic, um, like a centralized application server piece um, and application. Um, those requirements are blending over. And I, I think the big part of the whole, the whole DevOps movement is is paying paying a tribute to, to exactly that, um, that we have non-functional requirements which aren't easy to capture anymore and which probably will change with changing business models. This is similar to what Neil Ford said when he came on the show last week. Uh, well, we were talking about evolutionary architecture, and evolutionary architecture is basically the first principle that you keep in mind is this architecture is going to change. And that is similar to what you're saying. You say up front, we are going to be changing. And there are implications for that. Um, But I guess what we're focused on today is the idea of reactive microservices. And reactive microservices are perhaps, uh, maybe that is a, you could classify that as a type of evolutionary architecture. I don't know if you subscribe to these different uh, architectural premises, but I, I, I mean, I already did a show with Jonas, who is the CTO of Lightbend, where you work, and we talked some about reactive microservices, but what does that term mean to you? What is a reactive microservice? I think microservices, when they started to be popular, I mean, as you said, the term is pretty old and uh, was introduced way back. But when they started to be popular, every, everybody was thinking about them in terms of a software architecture slicing kind of design pattern extension, right? Um, and when we started to see the first implementations, like real-world implementations, people started to realize that just chaining randomly juxas or RESTful endpoints in general um, into each other is probably not going to work. So microservices themselves need a lot more to function and need a lot more design thoughts and principles behind to to actually give you all the the initial responsiveness that that you were that you're demanding with that kind of architecture. And um, I've I've been giving plenty of talks in in the past couple of of months and years and. The one most important part, I think, when it comes to microservices is that everything that characterizes microservices is pretty closely tied to um, the definition that's out there since a couple of years already, uh, which is called the reactive manifesto. So the one thing that we really want to achieve is is responsiveness and um, get getting answers from your applications for clients in a very, very timely, timely manner. And... Uh, Going down from there, um, responsive under failure is kind of resilience, and responsive under load is elasticity, and and those are based on on message-driven applications, and those are exactly the four tenets of of the reactive manifesto. And even if I if I come from a totally different world, this makes sense. This is what market what microservice architectures actually need to need to fulfill in order to work. Um, if I speak about microservices, I think my my implicit assumption is that we're talking about those kind of reactive applications because we're not designing our our software because of the sake of design, right? We need to fulfill business requirements. And with them changing, you need a lot more to have a functional application. And this is where reactive comes in for me. 
Okay, so so another angle we can take this from is that large enterprises are trying to move faster, and many of them have these large monolithic applications, and you write about this in your book. What are the challenges associated with those monolithic enterprise systems, and how does that contrast with the ideal reactive microservices architecture? <clears throat> having having a really monolithic code base that is not reasonable compartmentalized is, is comparably easy. Um, we, we don't know where we're going to end, but we are starting to write down something like business requirements and whatnot, and we're trying to build a centralized piece of software. And um, over the turn of the years, and we were talking about enterprises, um, this easily means applications being developed over the turn of two to three years, being into production five to 10 years, and still having to undergo reasonable um, changes in terms of um, change in business requirements, change in legal requirements. Um, we're, we're talking about the the original monolith, the thing that everybody has in mind talking about that definition. And um, testing, developing, changing, putting such a piece of software might even be a well-written piece of software into production and having all the tests running um that that used to be a very heavyweight process especially if if you look into all the different departments like operations um the test department the development department uh, like the classical enterprise organizational setup also supported that kind of lengthy production setting process um and that ended up being um, a rollout maybe once or twice a year um, or maybe every three to six months um, and that leaves you in a, in a very weak position when it comes to um, reacting towards any urgent changes and urgent needs right um, and I think that's for for many businesses this is exactly the driver behind adopting DevOps they're trying to address those those issues with an organizational change um, which will speed them up definitely but ultimately, if you have a bunch of microservices, and um, I'm, I'm not talking about a bunch in, in any uh, negative way, um, that could be anything more than two, because we need a system of microservices, right? It's not about putting individual services in production. Um, if you have an application, a reactive application that is built out of those individual services that interact with each other, it's a lot easier um, to adopt, to change, to add um, individual parts of the application in, in a lot quicker manner without having the need to completely redeploy the set of services. Um, and this is speeding up on a, on a very different level, on a, actually on a, on a developer level. I, I can have a team, I, I have a team of few people being fully responsible for one service, for one feature, for one functionality of of a complete reactive microservice system, and they can stage everything through into production, and that's pretty, pretty impressive in terms of um, speed, in terms of reliability. Um, so this is what what's the real game changer for business at that point. You talked about the reactive manifesto as being formative for how Lightbend thinks about microservices, how you think the right way to think about microservices is. Talk more about how the Reactive Manifesto influences Lightbend's approach to microservices. I think it's um, it's our core belief. It is not only Lightbend's core belief. I mean, the Reactive Manifesto was was written by, by a bunch of industry ex- experts, um, including Red Hat. And um, it's, it's not Lightbend's kind of thought, but it's our our core definition of our technologies that we use to implement my reactive microservice-based systems. Um, I, I mainly want to point out that it's not like Ben's main thing, the reactive manifesto. It's, um, it's been meant and used as a cross-industry definition of reactive applications and how to build them. Um, it's, it's mostly a definition in terms of equalized wording enabling people to talk about the same things. So we have talked a little bit about microservices, why the motivation for microservices. We've talked about the challenges of a large enterprise that's trying to move away from its monolithic structure. 
towards a more microservices structure, perhaps facilitated by a DevOps mentality in the organization. On the technical side of things, Lightbend is working on a microservice framework called Lagom to help decompose a Java enterprise monolith. I've been at enough companies seeing Java enterprise monoliths to know that these things are really hard to work with for a number of reasons. Can you give an overview for why that is? Why, I guess, uh, you know, because we already talked about why people are, why these companies have challenges associated with monolithic enterprise systems, but I guess discuss more why Java EE applications lead to that monolithic problem and what how that exists like how that problem manifests in the everyday experience of the developer i personally believe that java e is is a great platform um and it's very easy to start an application from the very front end built in jsf to the very persistence in jpa um as a matter of fact everything that is important um runs on top of containers and those containers usually are bound to application servers, right? So the the whole principle of having containers and layers, a very technical layering on, on top of Java E makes it very easy to build a complete application in a way, and not only to build, but also to, to provide artifacts and deployment artifacts um, that are a, a big bulb, a, a big binary. Um, one big blog. You can use Java E in a way to have a more separate approach, and uh, there are people out there like like Adam Bean evangelizing WAR files per service and having like seven kilobyte WAR files, and that's that's definitely not the enterprisey um, Java E application I'm talking about. Um, when I run into enterprises and when I see those five to ten year old applications. Uh, we, we might even talk about 150 megabyte kind of EO files, uh, monstrous applications. And um, I kind of agree that it might be really hard to actually migrate or modernize those kind of applications for various reasons, mostly because those applications are so outdated that you rarely find any reasonable documentation about them anymore. Um, so the last truth is in the code. Um, but there are a couple of, of approaches to modernization in general. Um, we don't need to talk about like a complete migration. We can strangle parts out and have separate stacks for a while until we have the, the relevant functionality put from, from A to B. Um, but what I think is most important, logom isn't, isn't exactly meant to migrate something or be be a big help in migrating existing Java E applications. It is meant as a big help to help developers implement microservices without all the the hassle around because it is very opinionated. It's not like Java E a complete toolbox that lets you build everything and package it in in the standard artifacts. Um, it is supporting developers by having a bunch, uh, three, actually it's three, it's not even a bunch, um, dedicated APIs that understand the notion of services, that support developers with all the downstream um, design patterns and architecture choices like CQRS, for example, for persistence, and uh, makes it comparably easy to transition from an existing Java EE API knowledge background into the modern microservices world. Um, what are the, the three things of those API, of that API? It's the service API. Um, I've, I have a hard time comparing that with Surflet, but maybe it translates to, to the enterprise listeners. Instead of having a Surflet API, you now have a service API with a logom, um, which allows you to build service definitions, service APIs, and service implementations. And uh, it also helps you separate the implementation from your um, service descriptors. Um, it gives you a good overview about, it gives you help in terms of APIs 
uh, to consume services and to produce services. Um, the second important part is the persistent persistence API. Um, this mostly defines how entities are persisted and how CQRs as a pattern can be implemented. So it gives you a couple of um, APIs on top of Cassandra that abstract away your your write side and your read side and makes it very easy to implement those those patterns. And we can also start to to talk about the the message broker support. Um, on top of Kafka, we now have a, a service decoupling mechanism that is a lot easier than the first logom um, logom versions were. Uh, my my book unfortunately is still built on top of logom 1.0, which was basically the initial version. Um, logom is in 1.2. We also released 1.3 uh, release candidate right now. Um, so a couple of things changed from my original book, and I'm actually going going to update that very soonish. And uh, the last part that Logum gives you is the the development plus the operation setting experience. Um, if if you just imagine having a, a bunch of Spring Boot services, and you all have fed jars, and you can open up a bunch of terminals and you can individually start them and you have to start your your service locator or you might actually have to deploy everything to a Kubernetes environment to have your services work as a whole. Um, Lagom abstracts that away on the developer side. When you're on your development environment, you have a single JVM and we're doing all the service um, lookups um, with Google Juice. Uh, totally transparent for you. It behaves as if it would be deployed to various JVMs, but it's actually running very quickly in one JVM locally. But it also supports the complete packaging of the individual uh, services and putting them into uh, into production uh, with various orchestration tools underneath. Um, so you can choose Zookeeper or Konzu, or you could even use um, Conductor, uh, which is a Lightband product, um, to put everything seamlessly into production. So those, those are the parts. Let's take a top-down approach before we get into things like CQRS and event sourcing and the persistence layer built on Cassandra. The thing that we discussed is an enterprise moving from its monolithic Java EE application to a microservice architecture. If they are doing that with Lagom, what's the first step? What uh, What is the first thing that they're going to do in order to start decomposing that monolith into microservices? The first thing is um, trying to figure out if it's reasonable to actually migrate the existing um, application. We we found, and I think it's, it's also not a light band thing, but you need to have a very good domain model of your application. And uh, speaking of domain models, domain-driven design is is probably the most valuable way in designing for your individual services um, and the complete microservice application. Um, having a bounded context as, as a service and having the, the service APIs in between. And if you compare this design approach to what many enterprises have been doing um, five to ten years back, you rarely will find any Java E application that is cut that way or even has a chance of going down that route. Um, so after after we're done deciding if the design is appropriate for real migration or if we need to need to find find another way, um, I'd say many decide to go and strangle out parts that are critical in their existing monolithic applications. Um, I also have to admit that I like that approach a lot better um, just from a risk management perspective. Instead of aiming for the Big Bang and replacing everything that's in existence, um, it's, yes. it's a good first step, right? Yes, the strangler idea of you, you identify one specific aspect of the application that is simple or well-defined to to replicate in a service, and then you build that service, you stand it up, you gradually start offloading traffic from the monolith 
for that specific component of the application, pointing it at the microservice, and once that works, you have illustrated the n equals 1 case of decomposing your monolith, and over time, you have more and more of these little parts of the monolith that you've broken off, and over time, they strangle the monolith. We think of little weeds coming off of the monolith and eventually strangling the monolith um, because they just eventually are equal, you know, the, the sum of the parts of the microservice microservices architecture strangles the monolith. Correct. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, um, I talked about um, about risk management at that point. I, I think what's critical to, re- to remember here is we're not modernizing our, our applications for the sake of good or better or new design. We're modernizing them because we hit a roadblock at some point. Our operational costs are too high. Uh, we can't modernize as quickly as we need to. We can't add new business models in our code base. Um, so identifying those parts that are profiting the most from a microservice um, architecture is also a, a very reasonable first step because at the end of the day, somebody has to pay for it and there will be business requirements driving those modernization efforts. Um, so this is my preferred way actually to identify the critical paths that would have the biggest value in terms of being migrated, rewritten, re-architected on, on a new platform uh, that is actually able to handle the load um, that is needed. So we've done a bunch of shows about people moving their monoliths to microservices. We've talked about that strangler pattern before. If I am pulling off some aspect of my monolith and putting it into a microservice, and I'm thinking about the strangler pattern, and I'm doing that with Lagom. What is my experience with Lagom? How is the service API, for example, used in that light? Uh, I don't think it has any particular particular issues. The, the biggest and most important part is you need to decide how you are going to um, design the communication back to your monolith. Um, Lagom is built to exactly address all the needs for a reactive application. So Lagom can handle a lot of requests and a lot of load. Um, and I'm not even saying that out of nowhere because Lagom actually is something that sits on top of existing technologies. So Lagom uses um, underneath Akka Streams and Akka Cluster, and it also can use um, functionality out of play. Um, so everybody um, who's been thinking that Lagom came out of nowhere is, um, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. So Lagom is basically a, a very nice abstraction and developer usability plus microservice um, architecture and framework on top of proven and existing technologies. And that gives you and opens up a bunch of, of opportunities for, for integrating your existing applications. As you can imagine, especially if Lagom starts to communicate back with a monolith, um, we could handle and process messages um, and requests way better than, than a Java E application probably can. This is why we're starting to offload our services into Lagom, right? Um, so exposing um, restful endpoints from from Lagom is is a good way of trying to have that first integration. You could also facilitate um, the message broker underneath, and you can also use um, Akka Streams to have all kinds of integrations. And there's one particular interesting thing, um, a new project in the in the Akka ecosphere um, is called Alpaca. Um, I'm I'm probably getting burned for that one. Um, it's camel done right. So Apache camel on, on a non-blocking infrastructure. Um, this is Alpaca. You have sources and sinks, and all, you can you can actually implement adapters, um, streaming non-blocking adapters towards all kinds of things. And Alpaca already supports JMS, um, a bunch of other um, integration technologies. 
if if you use Alpaca underneath Lagom as an integration technology with your monolith, um, that might be a good way to to think about it. Um, but again, as as you can imagine, we can also support RESTful endpoints, um, expose them over HTTP. Um, I haven't thought about WebSockets, but that's also a way of having a streaming connection, depending on the client library in your monolith. You're talking now about the different communication strategies you can use to communicate between these services that you're going to be standing up using Lagom and the old monolith. And I think it's worth here getting into CQRS and event sourcing, which we've had a number of shows about. Um, why do reactive microservices want to be using CQRS and event sourcing, and how does Lagom implement that? Um, the simple answer about the why is that we need a non-blocking way, a very fast way of persisting and reading data. Every API in the Java ecosystem um, is more or less blocking, especially looking at JDBC and everything that's built on top of it. Um, I, that, this is probably the, the biggest drawback if you think about um, Java. You know, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I should, I should probably ask you to, to scale back because we, we've done a number of shows recently about CQRS and event sourcing, but maybe for people who are, who are listening and haven't heard of this pattern for the first or they're hearing about it for the first time, you could just okay. give a, a very brief overview for, for what it is. Okay. CQRS is command query segregation. Um, and uh, I, I, the, the idea is to separate reads from writes. Why are we thinking about that? I think there, there are a couple of patterns. It's, uh, it's very easy to optimize an, a database for either reads or writes. You can't optimize the same data source for, for both. And depending on, on your microservice, you might actually end up having to serve way more reads from a database, or you have a bunch more writes because an individual service is called plenty of times um, through all your application demands. And the CQRS pattern is, is built on top of something called event sourcing. Um, instead of having a JPA entity, a full set of a table row and changing and updating it in a relational database, CQRS only stores changes, and those are, can be thought of as events. Um, instead of persisting the complete, every single attribute in one entity, you're only storing the changes that happen through a write. And um, this is basically made happen by using events and registering your interested commands towards change events that are that are fired in the application. There are many books about CQRS, aren't there? <laughs> yes, so. there are. <laughs> Definitely. Um, Lagom basically gives you everything you need to implement those immutable events, the payload, and re realize the right side and make it easy, like work with an with an entity class, that's something that is at least mindset-wise a little bit closer to, to classical Java E uh, developers, um, but also helps you designing the appropriate read sites. So reading the the events and uh, of course replaying events to construct a complete history of the individual entities. Um, the API is comparably comparably simple if. Um, if you take a walkthrough in, in my book, the first, uh, the 1.0 version of Lagom was a little bit more complicated than the ones you, you're seeing now. Um, but it, it gives you a comparably good overview um, what you actually need to implement um, to realize that pattern um, on, on a Java base. And thinking about doing something in, in a different persistence technology, um, maybe something that is in the JPA sphere. Um, you don't really have an events bus or something that helps you implement event sourcing in, in Java E. It's, it's comparably tricky um, to, to make, I'm, I tend to call it legacy, and, and that's unfair because 
it's still Nod, uh, even if Gartner states something. Um, but yeah, it's it's just something that doesn't doesn't fit into the the enterprise um, API specifications, right? You mean CQRS doesn't? Yeah, there, there's nothing in in JPA, for example, that that helps you with building such an application. It's it's basically do it yourself or use logon. So my understanding of CQRS and event sourcing is you build an application such that every change to or every basically every uh, everything that happens in your application gets modeled as an event and the event gets propagated to perhaps a pub sub message queue and every service that wants to be affected by that event or that needs to respond to that event can read from that PubSub message queue, subscribing to the channels that that event gets published to, and you can have separate read channels and write channels because uh, maybe certain events are just accessing a database for a read, other events are uh, going to change the persistence model that you have for your application, and this is valuable because you can then model the way that your application reads data versus how it writes differently and you can also decouple the idea of events from the specific database that you're using for your application it also another advantage is that you get this immutable event stream of changes that have occurred in your application so if you need to replay events because you have an outage you can do that. You've got this source of truth for all the changes that have occurred in your application, and that's really useful. Um, so as we're talking about this CQRS event sourcing pattern, we've got all these advantages that we get, and then you're saying that the typical Java EE application does not uh, is not structured to enable this, but Lagom is... Describe how that migration occurs. How does a Java EE monolith go from its current model of doing things towards a CQRS event sourcing model? It, it's for sure a shift in thinking. It's nothing that we could just make happen um, automatically by copying, pasting EJB code into, into Lagom service code. Um, I think that's, that's one of the most important parts, um, at least to me, when when everybody talks about migrating. Um, I doubt that there is an easy way, especially um, if, if you, we, we've touched that earlier, um, thinking about transitioning a technical cut into domain-driven design. Um, assuming that you have a bunch of services, um, you will start to think differently about um, your bounded contacts and the functionality of the individual services. And uh, unless you have a Java EE application that is already mostly designed um, according to domain-driven design, um, you you won't be able to just pull out random functionality and implement it on a microservice base. Um, and if, there, if, if there's somebody out there um, telling you that, selling you a framework on top, I doubt that's ever going to happen. Full stop. So... Can you give me more more of an explanation? So if I if I'm standing up a service, um, I mean, how, so is there just no standardized? There's no standardized way of doing this. This is just like you're going to have to figure it out on your own if you're trying to move to CQRS. And you're, I, you know, I, I think that's what what I what I pretty much said. Um, yeah, give me a standard definition of a microservice. Yeah, no, I I don't. No, I'm not sure what. Yeah, there's no such thing, right? And yeah. Uh, when I first started talking about microservices, I asked people what, what the real size needs to be of, of microservices. And people came up with like kilobyte jar files or lines <laughs> of code. And um, as, as there is no standard definition, um, <laughs> another good example, like Unix shell script, um, Unix command, like a command like ls. Have you, have you ever like read the man page of ls um, that can't be a microservice? Um, I I can't think about a standardized way of putting a 
the classic enterprise Java E application that is technically cut and not really knows business domains um, into a modern microservice, reactive microservice application. There won't be a tool. Um, and I think it's it's totally it's invalid to make people think that they should just annotate the EJB and expose a RESTful endpoint and they have their microservice. I like your perspective here because this is basically so people criticize DevOps or microservice microservices for being these vague, ambiguous movements, but part of the reason they're vague and ambiguous is because there's a lot of different people who are moving from whatever is the monolithic age that we used to be in to the microservices slash DevOps age that we're moving towards that is clearly preferable. And everybody has their different methodologies. Everybody has their different technologies that they're using. And everybody's case is different. So it's kind of hard to say, oh, yeah, this is a one-size-fits-all tool. It seems to be what is what is more useful is talking about the broad architectural concepts that are consistently useful. One example of that is CQRS and, and event sourcing. You could talk about messaging layers. You could talk about, um, you know, persistence strategies, you know, having different databases for different services. Um, but there is no one-size-fits-all, it seems, for the microservices pattern. For sure not. And, and more importantly, um, there's no single framework. Um, I mean, even if we're talking about Lagom and even if Lightban has Lagom and Arca and Play, um, our biggest customers actually realize the microservice-based architecture uh, on top of Play. Um, you, you can you can actually do all all kinds of um, ways to approach microservices. And, and I mean, there are still people out there evangelizing that Java E is the perfect runtime for microservices. Um, if you want to invest into the outer architecture, into all the missing pieces, if you want to create your CQRs or read sites or whatever on your own, you might actually be, um, you might be fine. But this is definitely not what the, the idea behind microservice-based architectures is. Um, but when, when you finally hit the point where you realize that the principles um, that, that are centralized in that reactive manifesto really matter to you, to your application that it's critical that is it's responsive and available all the time and you just don't can't accept any out times like black friday uh, for walmart in, in canada was probably my, my favorite example um so they they hit a point where they couldn't actually keep their website running on black friday anymore it's it's just not been doable in the technology stack they've been on um, so they they did, they needed to move on, and uh, they they started implementing everything um, in in a reactive way. And even if they didn't call it microservice back in the day, um, it was a microservice-based architecture. It still is. Um, so if if you, that, that's probably why I'm trying to stress the fact that I'm not a big fan of migrating for this, for the sake of microservices. Um, to me, it's way more important to, to address the real business challenges behind. Um, if you have a working Java E application, if you don't hit any obstacles, why touch a running system? doesn't make any sense to me personally, and that's the architect talking in me. Um, if, if you hit boundaries, if you need to scale various parts of your application out, um, you might actually consider moving that over to microservices. Um, and the first part is you need to figure out what the critical path is in your existing application. And uh, as every application is different, there won't ever be a standardized approach, frameworks, tool support, whatever, um, to just convert an existing legacy Java E application into a microservice-based design. Won't happen. I mean, if somebody is going to make big money. So what about the Play Framework? Lagom is built on top of the Play Framework. I think you mentioned just now that Walmart is found success in microservices using the Play Framework. What is the Play Framework? Uh, the Play Framework is actually a um, reactive web application framework. Um, it's been out there since many, many years, has its strong fan base, both in the Scala and the Java community. It's a, it's a completely non-blocking um, web framework. You can build every web application you want to build uh, on top of Play. It just does. It doesn't really have the notion of services. 
So Lagom adds the, the value on top that it understands microservices and offers a way more opinionated set of APIs and helps you implement all the, the non-functional parts. And for persistence and PubSub messaging and clustering, Lagom uses Akka, which is a toolkit for building concurrent distributed message-driven applications. We did a show about Akka with... Um, Conrad? You know, one of, Conrad, that's right. Yeah, the master. Why is Akka so... Yes, he is certainly a master of Akka. That show was intense. Why is Akka useful for building a reactive microservices framework? It's not. It is a reactive framework for the JVM. Um, Akka is a JVM-based implementation of uh, the actor model, um, which is not necessarily the same as microservices. You can think of individual actors as microservices, but you don't have to. So Akka solves all kinds of problems um, in, in the distributed world, in a heavily distributed world. Um, but again, it doesn't have the notion of, of microservices. Um, so this, this is where Wellagom just helps you getting your thought model easier and uh, quicker adjusted to, to microservices. Describe in some detail how services should be sending messages to each other. So let's say you've stood up several services within Lagom. How are they sending messages to each other? Um, they are actually sending messages via Kafka. So Kafka is the underlying message broker um, that decouples the services. And um, it's it's based on, on Akka underneath, so... Um, the technology of how services talk to each other is how actors exchange messages with each other. But the complexity of the implementation is, is hidden inside Lagom. And in Lagom, you have these two different kinds of messages. You have strict messages and stream messages. When would these different kinds of messages be useful? This is mostly... Um, I think a good example is exposing them um, as as web endpoints. Um, so strict would be a RESTful endpoint, and stream would be a WebSocket bidirectional connection. And depending on what you want to achieve, um, I mean, you could have a simple um, a simple ticker example on a, on a website. If you look at the Chirper um, example that comes with Lagom, um, which is a Twitter-like chat service, I think it uses... Um, uses WebSockets to display the, the new incoming tweets at users, which makes sense. Right. So since we're talking about services communicating with each other, we could talk about the circuit breaker pattern here. This is useful when you're building these, these uh, chains of services. So if you have service X, which makes a request to service Y, which makes a request to service Z, if you have the service in the middle that breaks, or even the last service that breaks, um, then you can have these cascading failures. Circuit Breaker is useful for presenting these. What is the Circuit Breaker pattern, and how is it implemented in Lagom? The Circuit Breakers actually help to identify failing calls to other services. Um, per default, it's configured on the client side, of a service. Um, the funny part in, in Lagom is that all um, service calls with Lagom clients are by default using circuit breakers. Um, and uh, the granularity of the configuration um, can, can be defined by the service provider. Um, by, by default, one circuit breaker instance um, is used for all calls to other services. Um, I, uh, I think that's one of the beauty of, of Lagom at that point that you have reasonable defaults like uh, max failures um, for circuit breakers or reset timeouts um, that are hidden from you by default, but you can totally influence them on a per-service um, level by just uh, adding a configuration file to your application. And uh, you, you also have the ability to actually look at the individual circuit breaker statistics um, and uh, just as a brief mention, if, if you're using the uh, the complete reactive platform from Lightband, you also get a tight integration with the monitoring system for the individual circuit breakers. So instead of pulling in a Netflix dependency, 
um, you have circuit breakers built in in Logo. We have been talking mostly about refactoring Java monoliths. How does this conversation change if we're talking about a Node.js or a Ruby on Rails monolith? Um, I guess people who are using Lagom, Lagom would probably not be used by this type of person. Well, I guess you could, right? You could use Lagom to refactor a Node or a Ruby on Rails monolith, right? I, I think the the common point of exchange might be uh, restful at that point. Um, so strangling the the old Node.js, whatever application. Um, speaking of old for Node.js, kind of feels weird. Um, <laughs> I, I think the the most reasonable um, way of doing that is uh, identifying that you as a company can't rely on anything that flexible as Node.js, and that you. I mean, who said that? When companies grow up, they move to the JVM. Um, th- this is kind of uh, what, what I think about it. People who are using Node.js probably won't ever think about migrating to the JVM as a technology. Um, but if you have to, and if you have to rely on something that stable and, and rock solid and proven as the JVM, you probably would find ways. And I couldn't even tell if there's an Alpaca module or something, Alpaca Streams integration. Um, no, haven't haven't thought about that a lot yet. Well, I want to begin to wrap up and just zoom out a little bit. Can you tell me some of the characteristics of the organizations that have successfully moved from monolith to microservices? What are the things that you think that they're doing right? I'm trying to go through my recent use cases. Um, most importantly, they acknowledge that changing, significantly changing the existing that is running since many, many years is necessary. So being being open to change and having an organization that supports DevOps is, I wouldn't say a, a hard prerequisite, but it, it makes a migration way more successful. Um, after that, it's mostly an exercise in, in architecting applications differently. So getting rid of everything that containers have spoiled us with and uh, architecting for failure and embracing failure instead of programming around failure is is one of the things that definitely lead to a successful migration. Well, I think we can close on that. I think that's a great place to stop. Um, Marcus, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you about reactive microservices and people who are in a situation where they have a monolith should check out Lagom. Thank you so much.